Welcome to Applied Intelligence, a conversation at the intersection of people, technology, and getting stuff done. And now, here's your host, Imtiaz Ahmed. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Applied Intelligence. I, in this episode, I'm going to be interviewing a dear friend of mine, Mohammed Zaman. Um, Mohammed Zaman is uh, the director and the founder of ADL Estate Planning. He's also a very good friend of mine. I got introduced to Mohammed, um, I want to say seven or eight years ago as I moved to uh, the UK. And he was introduced to me by a mutual friend, uh, Bilal Hassam. And I, I'm going to have Bilal on the show, uh, inshallah, in the future as well. Um, but Mohammed's just a very fascinating guy. And uh, full disclosure, I'm an investor in one of these uh, companies. Uh, and I'm an avid supporter of people that are. Um, support uh, that are creating uh, some really cool things for um, consumers as well as people that are looking to improve their overall wealth. Um, so I'm going to have a fascinating chat with him today and I know you are too. So let's get started. Um, Mohammed, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on board. So the way I like to open my podcast um, and the way that I like to get the audience to know who I'm talking to is asking this really, really important question to me, which is, you know, if you had an autobiography and it only had five chapters, what would the chapter titles of uh, the book of your autobiography, what, what would it be? Let's go. That guy. Five chapters of my autobiography. I, I, I would probably say chapter one, adolescence. All right. Uh, chapter two, inquisitive thinking. Chapter three, marriage. Uh, chapter four, well, actually, I, I think between chapter three and chapter four, okay. there would probably have to be a sub-chapter around entrepreneurship or initial entrepreneurship and then marriage. And then I would probably say... Uh, ongoing entrepreneurship or an ongoing journey in business. Okay. Yeah. Give me the cliff notes of each. Okay. So I guess, what is it? So, so the first chapter was adolescence, I guess. Not a kid. Right. So primary school, secondary school, just, you know, just becoming acquainted with the, with the way of uh, the world as such uh, in that particular immature domain that I had uh, during that particular time, I guess, of four, uh, uh, I was learning, I was experiencing relationships. I was a quiet kid uh, growing up. So I was very reflective. I was a dreamer. All right. So I guess there could be a few things to be said about that uh, to be elaborated on during my ad, uh, ad, adolescent period. Chapter two, uh, what did I say? Critical thought and critical thinking slash entrepreneurship. During that particular time, yeah, certain. I started, I started questioning a whole load of things. So, uh, history. I enjoyed studying history around that particular time. I I started asking questions about faith and religion. It became a very big part of my upbringing, especially in relation to a whole host of topical uh, events that were happening globally. And also around that particular time, I got my first foray into entrepreneurship. Uh, entrepreneurship has been a big part of my upbringing. 
And uh, moving on to the following chapter, it actually continues because post my marriage, I took on a lot of responsibility quite early on and, and yeah, needed to acquire a whole load of new skills. I guess what I would say, it, it, sorry, and the final chapter is ongoing entrepreneurship. Okay. Ongoing entrepreneurship is effectively a space where I am right now. And in that particular space, it includes combining entrepreneurship, I guess, with having a family too, and what that actually entails. So, yeah. so in terms of becoming a founder of your own startup, of your own business, um, what are the key experiences that have led to where you are today? I want into here wealth management has been my high income skill okay uh i've been fascinated with with the way money works uh for a very long time i've been fascinated with the way the economy around within the uk and how it interacts globally also at, actually interacts I've been fascinated by the evolution of companies around the world. So looking at the history of, thing, of major companies like Apple, Tesla, Microsoft, yeah, fascinating. And I think I took a lot from that. But that, that is at a global level, right? But even at something that is more, say, more reachable. I'm also fascinated, and, even, and, and I am even to this day with boring businesses. Or, or dare I say boring businesses. So even your laundrette, okay, or even um, a, a plumbing company or an electrician company or a very successful small restaurant business or a cafe business, knowing that these businesses retain profitability and how they retain profitability in a highly competitive environment have always fascinated me. That's the one side. The other, The other area that, I, I'm, I really like to look into is particularly around branding. So branding is quite key. So uh, branding has fascinated me from, uh, from day So just coming back to, you know, small businesses, personally, one of the most, I want to say, highest cash flow ROI businesses that I've actually invested in is a small business um, and the family business, uh, which is in property management. And, you know, outside of, all of the the sexy sort of um, you know startup ventures, tech ventures, etc. The one that cash flows the best is by far um, the small business. So you know it goes back to what Warren Buffett said, talks about in terms of having multiple sources of income, diversifying your income portfolio, um, and managing your expenses. Um, it's not all about just you know putting your money into tech stocks um, and high risk startups. Uh, within the tech sphere, it's also balancing out your portfolio and having um, things that are also cash flow. Um, you know, uh, there's about, oh, I can't remember his name now, um, but cash flow is happiness uh, to, to many people. But yeah, comes back to the importance of, you know, when you're assessing that business, look at the cash flow. Cash flow is very important. Okay. No, no doubt about it. But it also depends on, on what you want to achieve from that particular business as well, from that from that particular business investment, because one could actually be a, or could actually be investing in the business where there's very little cash flow, but 
the the equity position over the next five, 10 years could be could become far greater. And also cash rich businesses, when you've got cashing, you know, regularly coming in, it doesn't necessarily mean the actual equitable value of the actual business is actually increasing over X number of years. So it's something something that one needs to consider. But it's phenomenal to give you liquidity. And as an entrepreneur, you need to have liquidity. If you don't have liquidity, you're on a back foot. Okay, so one of one of the most difficult aspects about setting up your own business is where on earth do you get that liquidity from? But this is where this is where I think starting small is actually not a bad idea, um, yep. because you know, especially if you don't come from a commercial background, and if you you know didn't study finance and didn't study marketing, even if you studied marketing, you don't necessarily understand cash flow. Um, so investing in a small business and really getting into the nuts and bolts of a P&L of that business, understanding you know how much money is coming in every month versus how much money is actually coming out of that business every month. I think if you're a non-commercial person trying to get into investing, it's actually not a bad place to start. Even if you lose you know your initial five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars worth of investment and it goes to zero, if you learn how to manage that monthly P&L, that is a pivotal skill that every investor needs to have that you know a lot of people just look at the equity upside and see you know 30 40 50 x multiples and get excited but they're so you know they're very uh, rare to happen and you have to be amazingly good at picking them so it's not a bad place to start in small business well identifying alpha you know, is is what every particular type of active fund manager out there trying to actually achieve. But unfortunately, they ha- they struggle with it. The best of us struggle with it. Okay, so and also when you when you have a cash rich business or any type of investment to be to be fair, uh, as an entrepreneur, if you if if you lose five k, ten k, fifteen k, it could mean something very very different depending on your own your own entrepreneurial context. I mean, you could have a family with a few children. Yeah. Or you could be a single person, no dependents. All right. And losing 5K is not, not an issue at all. I mean, before I was married, um, I, I lost around five grand. It didn't have a huge impact on my on my well-being in the slightest. It just, it just disrupted me for a few months. Okay. But that journey were fundamentally important to to my growth and my mindset in approaching entrepreneurship today. This is being able to take those particular risks. In that particular situation, we did something crazy. So I was in university at this point, and I had invested just a little bit, a little under five thousand pounds into into clothing stock with a couple of other guys, but with no idea uh, as to how we're going to execute the actual investment, i.e., right, we've bought a whole load of stock, which cost around 12 grand, I think it was, which had a retail value of something like 60 to 70 grand. But, uh, and it was stock, it was stock that would be on a, um, uh, you, you know, one of those uh, markets on, on the high street. Yeah. Okay. We didn't think about who's going to open up the stall, who's going to get the license, all right? Who's going to be manning the stall day in, day out, 
right? Because we all had full-time jobs, right? So, so yeah, that, that was quite funny, all right? So we thought, all right, we're going to lose this particular deal. We figure all of that out later. Sometimes you can, you, that does work. Most of the time, it doesn't. And I, and I have the type of attitude where plan, plan, plan. And, and this is what I'm, I tend to be quite good at, which allows me, when I take those calculated risks, it's less of a burden to me. It's, it's less of a stress to me as well. So just, you know, drilling down on analyzing risks, talk to us about your experiences when it comes to employment. Like, what are the companies that you've previously worked at and what are the, those key skills that you gained there in terms of wealth management? Oh. Oh, yeah, totally. So uh, my first foray into private client world was back in 2003. So, and, and, and off particularly on the, on, on the mortgage side, I, I don't advise mortgages uh, anymore, but you, it's a good place to actually start your career. And this is shortly after university as well, a few years after university, because I was in the legal sector prior to that. I'll speak about that shortly, but that was one of my first roles. And the learning that I got in that particular in that particular role very early on is client interaction. It's basically sales and customer service. And what I learned during that particular time, it was so important to have an attitude where you can actually build trust and rapport very, very quickly. Because you don't actually have long to actually make a really good impression, whether it's over the phone at that particular time or whether it's face-to-face. So you need to leverage as much as you can. Now, the way I look at uh, fostering relationship, first and foremost, is to be authentic. And before, before thinking about the actual sale value, think about like, what problem can you actually solve for that particular person? Everything else will come out of that. Don't look at the sales figures first or don't look at your commission first. Rather, look at how can I solve this particular problem for that particular person and I guarantee you the blessings will come out. So in terms of you know struggles that you had in terms of the wealth management sector, um, what are the key things that, you know, did you struggle to reconcile and when it comes to you know, your outlook? Oh, yeah, totally. So um, I have a lot to say about the wealth management sector. And among among the areas that I, I disliked was particularly in relation to how investment philosophy or investment strategies are actually priced. In actual fact, in one of my, in one of my previous roles, I politely critiqued an investment strategy at the major wealth management firm that actually led to an internal departmental review and there a one-to-one training indoctrination to justify the firm approach. All right, so I'm, I'm not shy away. Shy, I'm, not, I'm not a person to shy away from, from critiquing something. And bear in mind, I left that firm and shortly after, without any association with me, there was an, an FT article on that particular firm, basically speaking about everything that I had actually said, oh. which is great. All right, so I, 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 felt, I felt quite vindicated in that. 
Cool dog. Um, but yeah, I, I decided to leave that particular firm and join another particular wealth management firm um, uh, shortly after. I, I'm the type of person, I can't be at an organization where their values don't align with mine. And those values relate to integrity, those values relate to equity, those values relate to transparency as well. I cannot, I cannot advise on something that to me, that I wouldn't be able to put those type of solutions in front of say people who are nearest and dearest to me. On another note, okay, uh, I'm, I'm probably not a very good employee as well. So not only that, uh, in one of my previous roles, uh, I led a staff, uh, I led a staff strike at a law firm. Oh, wow. All right. So, so, and that was once again, because of poor corporate practi practices towards employees and things like delaying, delaying staff salaries like that and a whole lot of the, which we don't need to really get into. And um, that was, that was a whole load of fun. So, okay, so yeah. And yeah, I did a staff strike when them off. So how does the, you know, in terms of being a founder, in terms of setting up ADL estate planning, how did all of these experiences kind of lead you to, to setting up ADL? Do you know what? I think, I think it was a case of a combination of circumstances that, that really came to the fore, which allowed me, let's do something that could be quite and bear in mind, I, I had that entrepreneurial experience, early years of university that gave me experience in a whole host of different industries, not just the legal sector, but also in retail and distribution and manufacturing as well, which I haven't actually really gone into. But you've got that on one side. And on another side, you had, you had someone who was passionate about economics, who were passionate about um about uh, global economics, in fact, okay, and who are also passionate about community as well, and passionate about faith and religion. So all of these particular areas came in, came came into focus when I was also looking at a particular career change post marriage as well. So in that particular context, I thought, look, I've got enough skills and experience behind me now to actually explore setting up a particular practice in a way that I feel is being missed in, in the UK. And this is particularly around private client services where the gold is, with us anyway is less about building assets under management, but more about solving complex problems. Now that mind is very, very important. If we can solve complex problems like how wealth transfers from one generation to the next generation, if that is done well, right, the next generation may not need to worry about a mortgage. That next generation may not need to worry about paying the rent. That next generation may not need to worry about how they can put their children through really good schooling or a fee-paying school. Especially if you can do that formative years of um, of a, a child's development phase. I mean, think about it this way. My work, all right, isn't necessarily just for the wealthy. Okay, yes, without a doubt, 
most of my, practically all of my clients are, are they come from a very privileged, privileged position. But they weren't always so privileged, not at all. I mean, some of, some of these, some of these characters, right? This is, they're in, they've, they've got their successes based on new money. They've got no idea about financial literacy. They've got no idea about legal literacy. Got no idea about how to plan for income tax, corporation tax properly. Okay, they're really good at making money. They're even better at spending money. Okay, and also potentially investing in the wrong things. I, I often say that I'm a really bad salesperson. I and I am. I, I'm a terrible salesperson. Okay, um, and the reason why I say that is. I've got sev I've got several clients and connections who who invest who've invested in a whole load of things that I I have me as a regulated person and and my colleagues as well um, in the industry would 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 find incredibly questionable. I mean, but simple things like putting in place a protection plan, okay, let's say fifty grand protection plan that pays out at the right time. That could do wonders for that particular family. Imagine if you didn't have it. Exactly. No, I think, you know, the main thing for me when I reached out to you, Robert, was, um, you know, my particular family situation back in Australia where my sister has an intellectual disability and one day, you know, she's going to become um, a, a responsibility of mine. I simply was not aware of all of the facilities and uh, benefits available to my family back in Australia. Like my parents had a very simple uh, will put together, um, which transferred assets to both myself and my sister. Um, but there were all of these provisions, um, specifically in Australia, and I imagine that the same in, in the UK and in many other Western countries, if not um, in many other countries as well, where you, you, know, you have a special disability trust that is um, not... Uh, taxed the same way as um, you know a regular person would be. Um, so you know there are so many things that are involved in terms of inheritance planning and wealth transfer that people are just not aware of at all. And you know my parents are going to pass on a house, a business, etc. But you know not having that information would have literally cost. Um, me in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, over the over the course of my sister's lifetime, um, had I not done this just a little bit of, of planning, right? So, you know, in terms of understanding this and getting your, you know, if you're just starting out or you know you you have a family who owns some property, how do you kind of get started in terms of updating your financial literacy to become aware of all of these things that are very accessible and available um, to everyone. And, and let's park that question for a second. I think the other side of this equation is um, in terms of understanding inheritance, I think the big gap that I found out by speaking to you was um, your accountant doesn't necessarily understand inheritance. Your lawyer who does your who does a will doesn't necessarily understand tax and um, an estate planner might not necessarily understand, you know, everything that's available 
um, to you. So, you know, when you're doing this stuff, um, it's so important to have somebody who understands all three things at the same time. Otherwise, you're going to get misinformation or lack, like not enough information to make the appropriate choice. So how do you get started if you've got absolutely no clue what to do here? Really good question. Okay, so I'll answer it at an but it all comes down to two two approaches that, or two goals that we have at ADL. ADL, bear in mind, it's, it's now effectively a group because we've got subsidiary companies underneath that does different things. They've got the re regulated wealth management side and then you've got the lead services side. But in combination, the, the goals are two. Okay. Number one, improve financial, financial and legal literacy. Okay. So people can be a hell of a lot more confident with the specialist advice that they actually receive. And it's not just the, not just the, uh, the quality of the advice, advice, but speed of implementation, it is crucial because for certain persons, they may not have sufficient life expectancy in order to mitigate inheritance tax. If they die, if they die before seven years, right, which relates to a, which relates to uh, gifting rules in the UK, then it's classed as or be classed as a a cell pet, okay, cell potentially exempt transfer, or the other the other term that one one needs to be one needs to know about is the two year rule, and the two year rule relates to how long you actually hold certain investments. But without going into technicalities about strategic um, inheritance tax planning strategies, the seven-year rule and two-year rule are, are fundamental. Now, the other goal that we actually have, okay, in addition to improving financial and legal literacy, okay, is reduce absolute inheritances. What I mean by that, do not give your children a single penny. All right? Don't give them a single penny. It is one of the worst things you can actually do. All right. If you were to give your child or your daughter a decent amount of wealth that is that is in their personal name, so they hold legal title and they hold beneficial title, it exposes them to a numerous number of threats, and they include things like divorce settlement claims. All right, heaven forbid they they divorce. Fifty percent of that inheritance is gone. They may not be as good with money as you are. 100% of their inheritance could be gone. They may have alcohol problems, drug abuse problems, which a few of my clients have had, and they don't want their child to receive, receive sizable inheritances. What do you do in those situations? Okay. Then you've got things like generational inheritance tax. And that is where you've got inheritance tax that is charged at 40% on the wealth that cascades from one generation to the to the next generation. It's, it's essentially a hidden a hidden tax. Now, if you can solve inheritance tax at the first stage, at the first generation, maybe solve is the wrong word, but if you only have to pay it at that, at that first generation point of view because you haven't been able to do anything else, at least structure your affairs in such a way your future lineage for at least 125 years won't need to pay it. And the way to actually do that is to put in place strategic planning during your lifetime. 
and that includes uh, it, what it can include trust based structures and it can include family investment companies too or a combination of both okay so yeah don't give any of your children a single penny pass everything ideally into into trusts and um, appoint professional trustees along with lay trustees to manage the underlying assets and you know, specifically on this, I've moved around uh, a couple of countries now, so across the US, um, Australia, and the UK, and I've had to do this exact process in each one of those in each one of those countries because the legislation and the the setup of such trusts are, are completely different um, per jurisdiction, right? Yeah. Correct. Correct. So yeah, so so someone like you, uh, who, who who's a nomad. Effectively, so you're going to need specialist advice throughout your life until you begin to reside in one particular area permanently. Uh, the one of your issues is going to be confirming where's your domicile, and even now that's not necessarily quite clear. All right, uh, I, I would say your domicile would remain Australia, but uh, it you could acquire something called deemed domicile status in different jurisdictions based on the time you're actually staying there. And that can have an impact on a whole host of your investment holdings in various different locations. Yeah, cool. so effectively, good advice is really important. All right, and and you highlighted something a little bit earlier. Um, the fact that you've got multiple professionals who are specialists in, the, in, in their own fields, but they they're not necessarily conversant in in others and will actually impact the client so what i say is that particularly in the private client domain you need a professional who holds high levels of qualification in at least two disciplines okay two of the three disciplines would be fine but they still need to be conversant in all three areas and those three areas are effectively legal services particularly with specialization in administration trust management uh, trust taxation uh, regulated wealth management services and also accountancy and tax. All three of those disciplines are fundamentally important. Now, I'm dual qualified on the regulated wealth management and also uh, I'm an associate member of the Society of Trust and Estate Practitioners. But I'm also uh, well aware of accountancy practices and also uh, um, taxation implications various different strategies that take place now your accountant though may not be a tax specialist okay don't think you go to an accountant and you're going to know about you want to learn about tax or he's going to come up with different strategies to actually mitigate tax no accountant's role isn't that an accountant's role is to file your accounts every year compliantly to the relevant authorities depending on which jurisdiction Mitigating tax, that is where it requires different types of discipline. An accountant who holds chartered tax advisor status, they would be the type of person you'd speak to, but you'd also uh, speak to regulated wealth managers too, and you'd also speak crucially to members of the Society of Trust and Estate Practitioners, STEP. Um, and STEP is exactly where I found... Um, outside of yourself, obviously, in the UK, um, but back in Australia, as well as here in the US, um, that's where I found um, local 
step members to kind of guide me through the process for the um, local jurisdictions when it comes to setting my, my affairs here as well. So you can probably appreciate he thinks differently as well. I mean, he approached the subject very differently from from any accountant that you've actually dealt with previously. Oh, for sure. Like my accountant, you know, doesn't necessarily have any clue in terms of, um, you know, the implications of tax when it comes to, um, you know, money that I would be receiving in my inheritance. Like when I spoke to my accountant about this stuff, he was completely unaware of all this stuff. And their job is to file your annual uh, income tax and not necessarily wealth managers or tax funders, right? Okay. So what's the, like the most important thing that people can do to get started or like start to prepare for their financial future? All right. So fortunately, right, I, I come from an industry, okay. Uh, I've got a lot of positive things to actually say about it as well. Right. Most of my colleagues in the UK, okay, uh, and I'm not talking about colleagues who I just work with. I'm talking about industry colleagues here. They are among some of the most highly qualified financial planners in the world based on the standards that have been set now by the UK regularly. All right. I would say, Miranos, any one of them would be willing to have an initial 30-minute conversation with you. Okay. They may not take you on as a client, all right? But within that half an hour, you can probably get a really good insight on what you should be seek, uh, you should be thinking about based on your current financial context. Many of them are actually quite resourceful as well. So when you've got complex financial planning needs, they will be able to point you in, in, in the right direction with somebody like me, let's say. But yeah, it's taking the first step picking up the phone or going online and just booking in that initial consultation to have a review of your personal financial situation. I wouldn't trust Google, by the way. Okay. All right. So Google, Googling um, ways to reduce your inheritance tax bill, um, Googling ways to reduce your corporation tax bill, right? It's not going to come. It's not going to come to much, right? If I were to, if I were to say, um, Protective cell companies. If I were to say define benefit SaaS arrangements, okay, you're going to find very little information on how that can actually apply to individuals and businesses in the UK to to a high degree online. And because it's actually really bespoke, because you need to structure these type of solutions very carefully for that particular individual, and also particularly when it comes to some of the strategies, it also requires multiple um, uh, knowledge of multiple disciplines as well. And many wealth managers in the UK will not have access to uh, the knowledge in-house to implement some of these type of solutions. I, like I, I think about this particular situation when it comes to you know, investing in, in said advice in terms of ROI and you know, yes, you could just go to wills.com and get a will set up for, I don't know, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, whatever. Um, but, you know, had I not, and my parents had already done that, um, but had we not got the specialist advice, and yes, it did cost, you know, in the thousands of dollars, um, you know, I would be missing out on, and my sister would be missing out on hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars worth of 
um, benefit over the course of a lifetime. So yes, it was a steep price to pay initially, um, but it pays multiples uh, if you, you know, do it properly and at the right time as well. I'll give you an example, Jether, right? You structure your planning web, okay? Let's say your parents settle assets in, into into a trust or into several trusts. should never be one trust, by the way. Very simple reason. Ideally, should always be multiple trusts. And they've got a few children, okay? And the children get along. Assume the children will get along. And there are grandchildren uh, here as well. The trust had its own trust tax rates. But what you can do, you can mandate the income from the trust fund to a grandchild. Okay? That is very powerful. Why is it very powerful? Because I'm probably sure that most of you are not going to be putting your grandchild to work if they're minors. Okay? And if they are minors and they're not at work, they will have their personal allowances available to them. So the income that is now that, that's now been mandated to that particular child or that particular grandchild, because they're not paying any tax, right, could be received legitimately tax-free. That will be crucial in relation to funding, let's say, private school fees. Okay, that could be crucial for funding those private school fees you thought you would never have been able to afford for your child. But now you can because you're not paying 40% tax. Okay. When it comes to, on a personal front, you know, shifting the conversation a little bit now, um, what are the productivity hacks that you use in your life, you know, as a founder and uh, as a person who's leading a business and has got a family and all of these things going on? What are some of the productivity hacks that you use on a day-to-day basis to make your life more efficient? Good question. First of all, if you're an entrepreneur and and you're in that phase of growing your business, okay, you're not going to find a balance, right? You you have to be all in, right? All in, right? And your family are also going to need to make sacrifices. So you need hell of a lot of support from from the children, from your spouse, if you want to invest the time, energy, money, effort into setting up a particular business. Now, that doesn't that doesn't take away from the importance of improving your productivity. Now, I spend a lot of time in how to make my work that much more efficient. Now, the setup that I have, uh, particularly with um, the nature of my work, is I've set up a whole host of different systems in to make my to make my work a lot easier. So I have a CRM tool that I use, uh, which is fantastic, which is Active Campaign. I also combine that with a tool called Zapier, and Zapier. I think you introduced me to Zapier, son. So, uh, most likely, I introduced you to a lot of things. I should I should have set up utilia commissions, man. I would have made a lot of money. <laughs> You probably should, probably should. So yes, yeah, so I've connected. Um, I've connected a whole load of, you know, different type of software. So all of our lead gen that happens on uh, the landing pages, Facebook, all of that feeds into the CRM. And then I have a, I have our caller who who calls the lead. 
So I don't actually have to be involved in any of that until I get a ping on my phone saying a call has been uh, booked into your diary for X date, X time with all the relevant notes and I just enter into it, enter into the Zoom session, the Google Meet session or whatever. So yeah, software is a big part of, of my productivity management. Uh, I guess uh, the second aspect uh, of, of this all in terms of maintaining, uh, say, mental capacity in relation to all of this would actually be doing as much as you can to maintain a healthy lifestyle. So try to exercise a bit more and also try to eat uh, healthier. And you need to do that uh, as an entrepreneur as well if you want to be 100%. Now, you're, you're not going to always be able to do that. Because especially on my particular journey, there were times when my weight would just go way up because I'm, I'm working really late and I'm getting takeaway multiple times of the day and don't have time for exercise. But yeah, but what I found is when I managed to control that, then my actual productivity over the longer term during that particular week or two weeks actually improves. I'm still on five and a half hours sleep though. Dude, you're going to improve your sleep. Five and a half hours, not not. I know, I know. But um, it's it's something that has to be done, I think has to be done for for this particular period that I'm in. And it's natural, by the way. Um, all entrepreneurs actually have to go through. But it's not sustainable. It's not sustainable. I'm actually quite young right now, relatively speaking. So... I, I, I can I can abuse my body for a for a few more years before I'm forced to actually, uh, uh, you know, slow down. So we see how it goes. That's that's why I've got a new co-director in Okay, you're gonna love him. Name so his name is Prajesh. Okay, All right. So he's 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 quite a bit younger than me, mm-hmm. but he's um, super smart and he works really hard. So when when I wind down, he's gonna he's he's gonna be taken over. It's good to have a succession plan, or we can uh, talk about succession planning and. Uh, in our next service like when we do it together in, um, in yeah. the next talk so I, I always like to ask this question which is uh, what are some of the books um, that have inspired you and or helped you you know figure out what you want to do and how you want to do it yeah so in terms of inspiration okay so I don't know if you can see my book no you can't see my book I mean brain thinking it's all it I want to say, this is um, a really good book by um, Robert Greene. I don't agree with everything that he says. Um, Maybe maybe it's because it's not part of my psychology. But knowing how to actually deal with people and deal with different types of people in different circumstances, it is very important. Now, you cannot go through life making all of the mistakes and then learning from them you're not you're not going to live long enough or you're not you're, you're not going to have sufficient experiences so what you need to do is learn from other people's experiences okay and then when those circumstances come about in your own particular life you know how to actually behave that's a yeah, interesting point because I, I meet a lot of people 
um, or a lot of people that uh, I've come across, they typically want to go through an experience themselves and then take the learning from there. Even if you've like told them, dude, I've done this, I've made this investment, don't copy me, don't do this, they end up doing it anyway. And I'm like, you know, why did you just waste your time and money doing something that, you know, you could have leveraged my experience from, or you could learn for someone, you know, amazing. Um, for example, Warren Buffett, when it comes to investment strategy, then take the same thing, take the same principles from that and just, you know, belief rather than thinking that you're better than 99% of the world. Point and, and good observation uh, is something that I've observed as well. And I don't know what to say other than a lot of people have a gambling type of innate disposition. When it comes to investing, <laughs> when it comes to investing, great. You know, everybody is all right because I'm very much in the regulated space. So it's very controlled the type of work that we do by the regulator, and rightly so, even though. Um, my industry colleagues, many of them do lambast the regulator quite a lot, but having worked on the regulatory side as well as part of my, part of my background, I can most certainly see the value add of the regulator, particularly in the consumer space. But putting that to one side, all right, uh, when it comes to investors who then seek to go into some incredibly high risk initiatives. I mean, investing in, in, in small startups when they don't have the capacity to handle the loss of that particular investment. And it's not just the loss of that investment. It's also the lack of liquidity. So they invest in a, invest in a particular business uh, or invest in, in, a, in, a, uh, in a tech fund of startups. And there are so many right now, okay? And they can't get their money out. And their money's locked in for like 10, 15 years. They can't do anything. It's, good, it's as good as gone um, in, in any manner of speaking. So, yeah. So, I would actually say it is very important to do all of the boring stuff first. And the boring stuff is actually quite straightforward. Protect your lifestyle. How do you protect your lifestyle? Okay, you put in place the right type of protection policies, okay, which are affordable. Some policies, some policies, you may not need. Other policies, you would. It will free up your mental energy. It will free up your your need to do sophisticated planning later on in life if you set up some of these protection policies while you are younger, healthier, because they are so much more affordable. Okay, if you do, if you, if you, in addition to the protection planning, if you do things like utilize your annual allowance for your pension, that is a step in the right direction. Because if you were to do that, you're benefiting from income tax relief, potentially corporation tax relief, and you're also building up within a particular tax wrapper, which is free from inheritance tax. Which you know in the US but, is very similar to a Roth IRA. Um, for our US correct yes but the but the issue here is people don't want to go down that particular route and what they do is invest in property they invest in property and they forget the fact that this low interest rate environment i.e. a few years ago isn't going to last forever 
Okay, and that's a whole other subject area that we could actually talk about, and that is very much linked to to the nature of global economics. I mean, the U.S. debt ceiling right now, I think, like at Congress has granted it to like thirty one or thirty two trillion um, a couple of months ago. Maybe it was last month. Um, that cannot continue to be extended year upon year upon year. Now, when it stops being extended. What do you think the reverberations are going to be globally? It will be immense. So the other thing that I, that, I, that I mentioned is that our social contract with our, with our governments is going to be radically changing. Sure. Oh, yeah. Maybe one for another, another video. Sure thing. Um, to wrap up, one of the things I want to say is that you know, just like you would get a coach or a uh, personal trainer when it comes to your health and, you know, building muscles um, and building um, your fitness regime, I think it's very important to have the right advice from the right people who actually understand the trifecta that we talked about. Um, so tax planning, estate planning, um, as well as um, the legal implications of having a will. So you need to find someone who knows this stuff in and out for your local jurisdiction um, so that your family doesn't go through a nightmare um, when the inevitable happens, right? So, you know, I've personally gone through this in three countries and thanks to Muhammad, I've done this um, properly now across the three countries that I've lived. Um, so that, you know, there's nothing else that you take from this conversation today. Um, please do this properly for yourself and, and particularly for your uh, family. Um, to close, Muhammad, do you have anything else you want to share uh, with the audience before we close out? What I what I would share with with the audience and uh, that we have here today, all right, would be that it's never too late. At the very least, something can be done. Okay, it may not be the most optimum solution, particularly if you've left it till you're within two to seven years of you passing away. All right, but something can actually be done to mitigate whole host of different type of threats that could affect your family okay the crucial thing is to get advice as soon as possible super cool um so in closing out how can people reach out to you if they want further information cool they can connect with me on linkedin they can also connect with me via the website www.adlestateplanning.co.uk and on the site, there would there are options to actually book a 30-minute no-obligation conversation with one of us. Mohamed, thank you for being uh, on this week's episode of Applied Intelligence. It was always a pleasure to chat with you, man. And uh, I look forward to uh, coming across the ditch and uh, visiting you sometime soon. Looking forward to it, bro. All right. Thank, thank you. you.